Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They also offer great solutions for restaurants looking to streamline their front of house and increase sales. Millions of diners are already using Yelp, and these products are a great way to capitalize on that network. Head over to restaurants.yelp.com to claim your free page and learn more about these powerful tools for your business. Now here we go. You can't think your way through any crisis or opportunity, which by the way are two sides of the same coin, your brain reacts exactly the same way to that fear and to that excitement. You have to talk your way through it. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. The only way we're going to get through this is to get through it together. If I can help you in any way, don't hesitate to reach out. You can book a free call with me by going to joshcopel.com forward slash chat. Also be sure to check out the full comp restart guide packed with valuable resources and strategies from Yelp, Cornell University and Oyster Sunday. Go to joshcopel.com forward slash resources for your free download. Didn't write that down? Don't worry, there are links to both in the show notes. The greatest lesson I've ever learned is that personal development is professional development. I learned that lesson and countless others from Vern Harnish and the platforms he's created. Vern has spent his life trying to support the endeavors of entrepreneurs just like you and me. And in these difficult times, we need guidance from the best teachers out there. That's why I asked Vern to be on the show. Our conversation begins with the inspiration behind the Entrepreneurs Organization. Well, I had this opportunity, having founded a association of collegiate entrepreneurs, to host Steve Jobs' first public speech after being fired from Apple. So he'd been fired from Apple as baby, you know, in 1985. So in 86, in the spring, in the Bonaventure Hotel in LA, I pulled together almost 1,200 young entrepreneurs from around the world to come hear Steve share this heart-wrenching story. And by the way, I had sitting there with him, young Michael Dell and Mark Cuban and Kevin Harrington, the infomercial king, and Neil Balter, California Closets. And, and again, the, all the great young entrepreneurs under the age of 30. And later that evening, I then threw a party for him. And it was strange that Steve stayed, and, but he was standing over in the corner alone. And finally, Joanne Marlowe came out and asked him to dance and got him out on the dance floor. But I turned to my perpetual vice president during those years I was building YEO. Greg Stem, and I said, hey, Greg, there needs to be this organization for the Steve Jobs of the world. And I had recalled a friend of mine, uh, Joe Mancuso's phrase, it's okay to be independent, but no reason to be alone. And that was the night the idea was birthed. It took me about a year, uh, Josh, you're an EO member, uh, to raise the money and put the founding board together and get us launched. So 1987 is our official launch year, but that was the inspiration that night uh, with Steve Jobs. Well, and, and where did the idea come from? So I would say that most, the best education that I've received, uh, I've received from outside the industry, and I've been able to use those lessons uh, to level up in my industry. Yeah. And where was it that, that you created the inspiration for that? Like, what was the idea behind that? Well, you know, as they say, good artists borrow, great artists steal. So YEO, its original name now, EO, 
basically copied almost verbatim the YPO model. And so Young Presidents Organization has been around for decades longer. I, in college, I lived with and hung around a bunch of YPOers that exposed me to that organization. And I ultimately tapped YPO's founder, the late Ray Hickok, Hickok Belt, out of originally out of uh, Rochester, New York. He was the founder of YPO to be the honorary founder of YEO. And that then allowed the organizations to feel like they could uh, cooperate. And it was earlier this year, here now, decades later, that we we signed an historic agreement now to do official joint EO-YPO events. So it's just been so excited that both those organizations that represent great leaders all over the world, 42,000 in total, leading some of the most important companies and countries. The president of Panama is a YPOer uh, in the world are really having a chance to, to work together. Well, and I mean, especially during this difficult time, having that support yeah. system and having that network has been vital to me being able to successfully pivot uh, in the midst of this pandemic. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to talk it's, about, you know, go ahead. Well, but here's the key. Um, and it, we could get to the biology around it, but you can't think your way through any crisis or opportunity, which by the way, are two sides of the same coin, your brain reacts exactly the same way to that fear and to that excitement. You have to talk your way through it. And as you know, what's at the heart of EO is this thing called the forum. And it's you and a small group of other entrepreneurs that generally prior to crisis, we meet once a month in person for several hours. In the crisis, many of the forums move to once a week, uh, obviously Zoom or you know online for 45 minutes, but it was this safe place every week and every month where the entrepreneurs could talk out their issues, to hear themselves speak. And again, you cannot think your way through this. You have to talk your way through, and it's very biologically based. Well, and the structure of the forum is what's so valuable is because nobody is in the same industry within the yeah. forum. So you're tackling the same problems from five, 10 different experiences, right? Yeah, we, in fact, we, one of the things we recommend to all executive teams is one of the must do's every year is attend one trade show outside your industry. Cause see, if all you do is hang with everyone else in your industry, you're gonna think like everyone else in your industry. And at the heart of being successful in any industry, you have to be different. And you can't say you're different if you price the same way everyone else does, if you hire the same people and train the same way, and if you basically serve up the same product or service as everybody else, then you're just fooling yourself that you're different. And so hanging with folks that are in other industries allow you to kind of cross-pollinate really great ideas from other industries into your own. Well, in that, in that group thing inhibits innovation. You, you see it so much in hospitality, where it's a bunch of people that all think the same things and have the same yeah. experiences, aren't able to come up with, with truly innovative ideas, which is yeah. probably why you've seen a lack of innovation in hospitality over the last several decades. Well, look, you see a lack of innovation in every industry. There's just a lot of, well, that's just the way it's done here. And you know, that's the brilliance of companies like Southwest Airlines or Capital One. You know, I've been showing this latest Capital One commercial, you know, where they got the guys walking up the steps. And he said, look, he used to take all these steps. Now 
it's five minutes. You know, you walk into a cafe instead of a traditional looking bank, they've gotten rid of a lot of the traditional fees like Southwest got rid of baggage fees and change fees and even sub-branded it transparency. So the, the leaders, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, Southwest, Capital One, those that have gone about the industry differently have been the ones that have wildly succeeded and differentiated themselves in the marketplace. One of the first gifts I got when, when I joined EO was a, the friend that brought me in gave me the book Scaling Up. Oh, good. And it, it's just- You see it over there? It's, yeah, I do see it, it over yeah. there. It's <laughs> just, but it's, it's a transformative document because, hmm. you know, I, I think there's this fallacy in probably every major industry, especially ones like yeah. mine that have been around for so long, that like hospitality is different than every other Always. industry out there. Always. We have different rules. And so we yeah. don't play by everybody else's rules. But then you read this book and you realize that there are foundational principles that transcend all industries. Yeah. Um, can you talk about your path to discovery? Because the book is based off of Rockefeller principles. Yeah, so, well, what happened is once I launched YEO, again, to kind of borrow from YPO, they had a partnership with Harvard and ran, have run for decades this executive program that mirrors the OPM program there. And so I first went to Harvard to see if they'd also partnered with us. They said no. So I went next door to MIT. And in 1991, partnered with MIT and Inc. Magazine, I launched an executive program called The Birthing of Giants. Let's see if we can birth giants. And see, because there's so much information on startups, there's a, seems like an incubator in every street corner. And there's as many MBA programs. I have an MBA myself that's supposed to teach how to run a you know, big company. But there wasn't this parenting manual for how you grow up a startup to a, a scale up. And so I started down the path in 1991 saying, all right, let's create the tools, the techniques, the curriculum. And did that over a decade, moved about a thousand really innovative entrepreneurs through the program. They taught me as much as I taught them. And that's what culminated then, Josh, in my first book, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits in 2002. And then I had kind of a dozen years literally working with tens of thousands companies in our tools to perfect the ideas. And then that became the new book, Mas Scaling Up, Rockefeller Habits 2.0. And, and along the way, one of the, our very first coaching partner, John Anderson, and an early student in that Birthing of Giants program, I was visiting him in Detroit, and it was actually his wife who said, you've got to read this book called Titans. It had just come out, this biography of John D. Rockefeller. And as I read through it, him being an accountant, so very disciplined, I recognized a lot of the same tools and techniques that we were uncovering that were behind the most successful entrepreneurs um, were exactly the same that John D. Rockefeller had intuitively discovered and put in place, like the daily huddle. Uh, lunch every day with his nine directors. Steve Jobs, 100 years later, had lunch every day with Jonathan I. There were just so many fundamentals that we called them, just to give it a good brand, beat my name, Rockefeller Habits. And so the, the rest is history. Well, in, even in, there are so many rules out there that I think work in a great economy, but don't really translate to a terrible economy or let's say a global yeah. pandemic, which is where we find ourselves today. But I would say many of the rules in the book matter more in this moment than they would six months ago, a year ago. Wouldn't you yeah. agree? 
Yeah, well, it was, uh, and I should go back. You have to remind me to tell the story of Horst Schultz and Ritz Carlton. You know, I kind of got my start doing training inside Ritz Carlton, and we actually had our upcoming scaling up masterclass. We're going to host in person at the Sheridan in Dallas. Uh, we've got Horst Schultz uh, oh, beaming wow. in. His, his book, Excellence Wins, I think is a must-read book of everyone in the hospitality industry. Uh, but going back to your point, right as the pandemic kind of took off a couple months in, I get this e first email and then phone call from one of the top economic development leaders of the government of Canada. And Canada has recognized, as a lot of other cities and countries, that we have enough startups. What we really need are scale-ups. They're the first responders. They're the ones that generate 92% of the net jobs and and innovation. And so she got a hold of me. She said, you know, we've been working with scale-ups for a couple of three years. And I got to tell you, the scale-ups that are thriving right now in this pandemic, the only thing we're finding common of, of those versus all the rest is they're practicing your tools. So long story short, we ended up winning a, a government contract now to go in. They're testing on the East Coast of Canada, they suspect it's going to get great results and it's going to move all the way across the country. We heard the same from a leading franchisor who said, you know, they called us up and they said, we have some very, we have a handful of franchisees that seem to be doing much better than all the rest. So we inquired into what are they doing different? And, and they all had in common, except one, they were practicing our methodologies of scaling up. And just this week, we got a similar email from some leadership of New Zealand, you know, as New Zealand's been coming back. And so we have been so excited to hear that the companies that have been practicing our methodologies have not only survived, but have been thriving versus many of the rest of their industry because they've had these fundamental disciplines in place. Well, one of those disciplines is data, right? Garnering, yes. garnering the right kind of data like as frequently as possible. Uh, in doing background research, I, I had read, you gave an example as uh, Bennington India, right? Yeah. Um, a, a company that, that was yeah. getting their butt kicked by Levi Strauss. Um, and as soon as they started talking to their customers and as soon as they started talking to their teams, uh, you know, it turned around. And two years later, they ended up surpassing Levi Strauss and yep. sales. Um, it seems really easy on its face. Yeah, it is. Well, though, right? by the way, they, they didn't exceed them in sales, but they got named the number one retail brand mm -hmm. in India, displacing Levi Strauss. That's my good buddy now today, Sanjeev Mahanti. By the way, the rest of that story, after we helped him take Benetton from a no-name brand to number one in India, that obviously upset Levi Strauss. So what did they do? They poached him. So today, just. <laughs> He just won a year ago the icon retail icon award of India, and today he runs half the globe for Levi Strauss. By the way, the first thing he did is he called me up and said, Vern, I need a box of books. When can you get to Bangalore <laughs> to train the team? And I was supposed to be there in April uh, in person, so we had it all scheduled, and then obviously the, the pandemic, uh, pandemic happened. But you're right. See, at the heart of winning every war and every market is what I consider the oldest profession in history. And that is intelligence. Whoever has the best Intel wins. I've, I'm getting a kick out of that new Apple 
plus series called Tehran. And what you learn when you read any history and you watch any of those, it's whoever has the best, and here's the key, firsthand intel. Not reading the news because it's absolutely biased towards the negative, but it's whoever has, and we've said now, the number one KPI, and I'll, I'll get right to it, all, all your listeners, those watching this uh, podcast, the number one KPI is now and forever, the number of hours, not minutes, number of hours you are talking on the phone via Zoom, face-to-face when safe with your customers and your employees and with the marketplace. It's, it's Sam Walton who founded Walmart today, the largest retail company on the planet, you know, 20X Amazon size. And all Sam did was spend Monday through Thursday in his pickup truck, you know, going around to his stores, talking to customers, talking to employees, shopping competitors. And if you speed forward decades later, that's what the top 200 leaders at Walmart do. They don't even have offices because they're out in the field gathering intel. So it's firsthand intelligence that is key to scaling. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and one of the things that you've also talked about is in the information age, yeah. we suffer from a glut of information. Yeah. And, and it's hard to discern what's, what is valuable and what isn't. But to distill it down into just hearing directly from your team and your customers, that is invaluable. Yeah. And, and the key is they're not going to tell you directly. It's why the late Steve Jobs was always against focus groups as I am. They're too artificial. But what a lot of folks don't realize until you read William I, uh, Walter Isaacson's biography about Steve and, and then talk with Walter, Steve spent almost every afternoon grabbing a hold of a customer's issue and tracking it through Apple to understand, you know, what do we have to do to fix this? And the big word that we're really focused around is the word easy. You know, you're not going to win big if you're not frictionless to do business with, you know, from the new electronic keys where I can just check in with my, on my mobile device and have a key, not even have to go. I can bypass the front desk and all of that to the extent that we can continue to make everything easy, more frictionless. That's the direction every industry is going. And that's why, you know, the wealthiest guy on the planet next to Putin is Jeff Bezos. And they have obsessed every week about what do we have to do to make it even easier for you to get the stuff that you want. Well, and I think that that's also a natural evolution in the hospitality industry. And maybe maybe we were projected to be there 10, 20 years from now. But to eliminate the friction, right, to, to, to reduce the number of people involved in every transaction is the hospitable thing to do. It is. And it also shares up the, the solvency of your business. Well, and, and we also want to go to make my life easier from, you know, you start with the comfort of the bed to, you know, there's so many of the details. And, and that's where what's at the heart of it is relentless repeatability. And, and that's what Horst Schultz was able to nail at Ritz-Carlton. The fact that they had these fundamentals that they would review one a day. And so it created this. Uh, you know, I think about Town Park, you know, so, so Jerry South was one of my early students at that MIT program. His company out of Annapolis does one thing, park cars for the hospitality industry, mm-hmm. for restaurants, for hotels, take care of that kind of front end part 
and be that first you know, face to the, to the consumer, to the client. And one of the things he shamelessly stole from Ritz Carlton was what he called his daily basics. And they still use it today as they went from 200 employees when I met him to 15,000 a day. Now they've since sold to a PE firm and Jerry's actually going to bring a couple of the companies he's invested into our next CEO bootcamp in January. But his 31 daily basics, because there are 31 days in a month, each day outlined a very specific thing that they wanted to be consistent around. And then underneath that were like three or four checkpoints or behaviors. And so if you were working that day, including Jerry South, and it's a 24-7, 365 business, as all most hospitality is, you were in a daily huddle. And today, what is today? The 16th. And I can pull it up on my computer. Everyone working today around the world is going to say, today's the 16th. We're going to review day 16th daily basic and the four or five keys underneath it. So if you've got four or five a day for 31 days, you all, you know, there's a hundred little things you've got to get consistently right. And it's consistency that builds brand. And these are the routines that we teach in scaling up and, and guys like uh, Jerry South and his team have, have mastered in order to be able to build brand and build, build scale. Well, and you also, you know, one of the big lessons I got from Mia was that it's not what you think or say that builds culture. It's what you do that builds culture. And so as an example, by having a routine that has 31 elements that are repeated on a daily basis, um, you are pre-selecting people that will value the same things you value because they're willing to do the same things that you do. Yeah, nicely said. I'm just going to validate that. Um, and, And there's really two components there. See, as you scale, you've got to really free up other folks to make decisions. And, and that's what's scary. And so how do you create that consistency? And so I like to use the analogy of a playground. So you've got this playground for young children, and it's bordered by some massively busy streets. And you're the one responsible to make sure that these kids stay safe. Now, if there aren't any fences, you've got a mess. You know, the children are going to have to be corralled in the center of the playground. You're not going to let them wander off much. You can't turn your back even for a moment or all of a sudden one of them darts out and gets hurt. And it's a mess. And so nobody has freedom. That's what's interesting. Without fences, no one has freedom. Mm -hmm. But if you put up fences, then the children can play right up to the edge and you can go grab a coffee. And Mm -hmm. that's really the role of your core values and your three brand promises. They provide the white lines that exist in every sport. You wouldn't, it wouldn't be a sport if there weren't white lines. Uh, and the core values provide the rules of the game. Uh, I've dis- my uh, partner, girlfriend, and I, Deborah, uh, have discovered kind of this new board game. We're gonna go out and we played it with uh, some friend's house last weekend. We're gonna go get it. And, and again, you know, most people's fights over games have to do with, a a misinterpretation of the rules and we all get Mm -hmm. most upset when somebody breaks the rules Mm -hmm. and so core values serve as the rules we know their judgment calls the three brand promises serve as the white lines and that's the way you can begin to think about gamifying the business but more importantly with when those are solid people have more freedom you as the leader and your employees to make decisions and that's how you scale 
Well, and let's talk about leadership for a minute, because I, I think that you have keen insight into this. Yeah. When I started my first business, which was uh, a bar in Hollywood, yeah. uh, I loved every minute of it. I was yeah. in my early 30s uh, and I was there every day and I loved being there every day. What are you talking it about? You still look like you're in your early 30s. So <laughs> I don't know what gives. All right. So don't go there. <laughs> it's the lighting, Vern. It's the lighting. Yeah. All right. I, uh, when I started my second business, that's when I realized um, that I, I wasn't an entrepreneur, that I was, I was just buying myself jobs. Mm. So when, when I didn't just own the bar, I was the GM of the bar. Yeah. And then when I bought the restaurant, I was now the GM of a bar and a restaurant. Yeah. And you can't scale up that way. And one of the big aha moments when I read your book was that like the job that I was doing was very important, but it, it wasn't my job. And, and I think you see represented in my industry, so many people that are out there garnering investor capital, taking loans out from banks to buy themselves a job. When I don't think the dream of any entrepreneur is to get bogged down in the day to day. Scaling up provides a path to avoid that. Well, so no one feels compelled to buy the book. Uh, have everyone go to scalingup.com and you're going to see right in the banner a picture of the book. And next to it is a link to our free tools. And there are a couple of chapters that you can download for free. And the one I want everyone to get is the one called The Barriers. And I opened the story with Alan Rudy, who was an EO, birthing of giants, participant, literally working 80 hours weeks. And that's what was crushing it. And the goal of our tools is to get that down to, you know, 80% less. We got it down from 80 hours to eight hours, the time it took for him to really um, run the business so he could spend the other four, five, six days out doing those market-facing activities that allowed him to scale. And so you're right on. Uh, that is the key thing that we really help the leader, the business owner do so they can become a CEO and not the GM or COO and that other. So just download that article and read through it. And hopefully that'll give folks some, some insights. Two other things I want to touch on before I let you go. Okay. Uh, the first is uh, right back in March, you, you wrote an article where you, where you detailed out a five-point strategy for navigating the pandemic. Yeah. We find ourselves in this moment, probably on the precipice of the second wave. Mm. Um, and and I, I feel like that those five points are, are as important today as they were back in March. And so I kind of wanted to run through them with you and, and have you explain them if you're good with that. Yeah, no, that'd be good. In fact, I'm so glad you mentioned it. I hadn't even thought about it. That's why the student always, you know, teacher learns more <laughs> than the student. Uh, I think I'll go put that back out. You must. Um, you must. Uh, yeah. Look, so it was gifted to me. Uh, by someone else in EO uh, yeah. back in March. You wrote it at the very beginning of March. Uh, and and it, was, it was my Bible uh, oh, thank to, you. to get me through, truly. Yeah, we uh, called it the five C's of leading in a crisis. And, and what's interesting, you know, the first C was all about communication. And, and the thing we're well known for is this daily huddle that mm -hmm. uh, some of our competitors have de-emphasized, you know, I think at a detriment to the clients. They, they make you try to make our process simpler, but the daily huddle, this communication daily or twice a day was the single most important thing. And what, what 
uh, validated it for me. I didn't know until a few weeks ago we hosted, I think you were on at the virtual summit mm-hmm. that featured Richard Branson and Gary Hamill, but we had the co-founder of Airbnb, Nate, on, and he said the first thing they did in March when this thing hit, and they were facing a billion dollars loss of revenue, is they went into a daily meeting, seven days a week, as a way to power communication through this particular crisis. So, you know, it's not stuff that we make up. This is what real leaders of real companies do. It's the first thing Steve Jobs did when he came back to save his baby Mm -hmm. at Apple was he turned his conference room into kind of a situation room and went into a daily huddle with the team that was going to turn around uh, Apple. And he continued that, as I mentioned, a daily lunch up almost to the very end with Jonathan Ive and the design team. So yes, this first and foremost communication daily is critical. And then customer and community support is next. It is. And that was where, and and I thought Jack Daly, the big sales guru, had a great idea. You know, it's important that you first give before you uh, try to take. And so we encourage right away for folks to put down that list of the 25 or 250 kind of most important clients and relationships and influencers and just reach out, not, you know, email to schedule a quick phone call and conversation and just see how you can help. And we did the same thing. And I know our clients did as a way to really help support both their customers and their community and build up the emotional bank accounts during this time. So that was the the second C. Well, and clean up and catch up is my favorite. Yeah, well, it happened to be spring too, but this was an opportunity for folks to say, hey, look, we as entrepreneurs are actually pretty sloppy. And, and Paul Aker wrote a book called Banish Sloppiness that he's given away for free still during this whole mess because we get, we, we've had really wind to our back for the last 12 years. And so we could throw people and stuff at the problem. But this gave us a real excuse to go in and clean out processes. Uh, we cleaned up our balance sheet. We went and cleaned up. Uh, we went and digitized a lot of the stuff that was quite manual. And we even poured through all the recurring expenses, you know, on our Amex bill and all of that stuff. And we found tens of thousands of dollars per month that we had been spending money on things that we had not used for two years, but we were, our hair has been on fire Mm -hmm. for, for 12 years and we just didn't go in and look at it. So it was a really great moment to kind of take a pause and do some spring cleaning. And, and then I think it's important every quarter you continue because your jobs, your processes, they're like hallway closets and garages. You know, you, you clean them out and then six months later, they're junked up again. And what you discover is, you know, a good chunk of what's in there, nobody needs. And so you'd have to build a bigger closet and garage or clean out the one you've got. And this is a chance for you to do that. So that was the third seat. Well, and the reason it resonated so much with me was, yeah, was because... You can see this as a crisis or you can see it as an opportunity. And either way, whichever viewpoint you choose to take, you're right. And so, you know, I asked myself after reading this article, you know, what are the investments that I could make today that I wouldn't regret in six months or in six years? Well, and and the answer is getting my shit together, Vern. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a great 
Hey, Clody, this background, I don't know if you've had this whole setup and all that, but it looks spectacular. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. My wife so gets nice all job. the credit. Thank yeah. you. The, the fourth is going to be cash. Can you talk about cash? Yeah. And, you know, obviously you can get by with decent people, decent strategy, decent execution, but not a day without cash. Uh, we, we improved our balance sheet by 2.4 million to really bolster it, you know, through this crisis. So we had really talked about some very specific strategies for doing that. But one that we've really, and, and I'd encourage your, your, again, listeners, watchers to go to scalingforward.com. We, we put up a site also very quickly in this and called it the four P's. And for cash, one of the most important levers you've got is price. And the reason, look, as, as the guru of price says, Herman Simon, you only make two mistakes with price. You charge too much or you charge too little. And so getting <laughs> price right is difficult because we're selling to people, even a B2B environment. And people are not logical. They're psychological. So let me give you a quick example, then we'll come back to it. Um, the godfather of influence, Robert Cialdini, uh, showed that you just go to a restaurant. You know, hotel's got a restaurant. I was like, JW, I was just at in Nashville. Unbelievable Michelin star restaurant that we had a chance to go to last Friday night for a spectacular meal. And they have a wine list like everybody else does. And usually the wine list is from the least expensive wine to most expensive wine. Cialdini found that if you just flip the order of the list and put from most expensive to least, you'll drive revenue up on average 26%. You didn't change a wine. You didn't change a price. You just changed the order. And then if you anchor that list with three or four really expensive bottles of wine, you'll pull revenue up 250%. And that's the kind of deeper understanding of psychology. So We've been recommending really two resources. You might send that out to your group. One is to go to Herman Simon, the father of pricing. Back in the last crisis, Josh, he wrote a book called Beat the Crisis. We actually featured him on one of our earlier virtual summits. And if you go to that book, go to your Kindle. Right now, they make it easy to download mm -hmm. the book, Beat the Crisis. And I want you to go right to chapter six. And in there, he details seven pricing strategies instead of just lowering your price that are powerful to use in a crisis and at any time. And then kind of the hack, and we used it with our virtual summits based on this two years ago in HBR, there was a very important article written, Good, Better, Best. And they found that companies are going back to a good, better, best offering like the old Montgomery Ward catalog or Sears catalog I used to see as a kid. And so we did exactly the same in the, in the crisis. We used to have kind of a single price, but we had, you saw early on, our virtual summit was like $95. We also had a $295 price. You didn't get anything else more than the $95 <laughs> crisis price. And we, had, we earned as much revenue off the $295 as the $95. And then we put in a $995. That was 10x, the lowest price. It equaled as much revenue as well. We had about a third, a third, and a third revenue from all three of those different price points. And boy, did we learn a lesson eating our own dog food around just getting more strategic and smart in pricing. And then we made sure we put them in reverse order, the 995 first, then the 295, then the 95. Just psychological things like that are critical. And price then will really help you drive cash. And then the last C is calm and considerate. 
again, I think you were on it. We, we hosted Susan David and Susan said something important that look, probably all of us are suffering some form of PTSD. We've been shell-shocked by this thing. We've been locked down by this thing. And a lot of us, like folks returning from the war, don't even realize you've got it. So she gave me a quick little verbal test, and I didn't pass it. Uh, I realized I was suffering some of that. And so one of the very specific things that she recommended, and I'm still practicing it today because you're right, kind of the the craziness and the, the stress is coming back. And that is to kind of put on your own oxygen max first. Now, what does that mean? Very precisely, because I, I look, I don't know what I'm going to be allowed to do next week right. in terms of what's happening with lockdown. I'm trying to plan the holidays right now. My two sons are in Barcelona, other family east. We're looking at going to Mexico to get to the beach. But I mean, everything's changing daily. So the key we found was first, people like finish lines and fun. I just want everyone to keep that in mind, finish lines and fun. And people would rather watch the 100-meter dash than the marathon. So set very short finish lines. What I say to myself every day is, all right, this is all I'm going to do the next hour. I'm going to be, I'm going to prepare for Josh's interview, and I'm going to do this interview. And then I give myself permission to go do something for myself. So right here, I've got my my keyboard right here Mm -hmm. in my office. And I've got an opportunity to go over there. I'm working on a song that I want to play for uh, the love of my life. And so I'll go over and play a little bit of music. I look, don't tell anybody, I love playing solitaire. So I got a deck of cards that mm-hmm. I'll just play a couple of games of solitaire. And then I'll go back to work. So she said, schedule at least three times a day something that you really enjoy to give yourself just a small break and a reward and then go back and hit it hard. And I, I think that's, and that'll help you remain calm and consider it through this process. I think that's world-class advice. And I've actually taken it myself. Come on. I admitted it. What, what are your little guilty pleasures? Oh my goodness. So they, there, there are two really big ones. So the first one is my dog. I love to play with my dog. I'm working out of the house. So I I have ample opportunity uh, to play with her. Uh, and then the next is reading quietly. Uh, and it's always nonfiction just because I've never been able to get into fiction. Uh, but instead of reading about business improvement or things like that, yeah. it's always the life story of someone that, that I look up to or I respect or I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, when, when you had mentioned uh, the Rockefeller book, I'd read the same book yeah. um, and found it to be transformative as well. Um, so interesting, the choices that people make in their lives, you know? Yeah. Well, check out today's insight because I point to, I'm like you, I love business biographies, you know, the stories of real people doing this stuff. And this week, there was a book written by the, he was age 25 when he took over his dad's Dunkin' Donut business. At the time, it was 10 million. He stayed on for the next 35 years and scaled it to two and a half billion. Wow. And then he's gone on now to be an advisor and he's an octogenarian. And this week out came his, his book, uh, kind of his lessons from having scaled Dunkin' Donuts. And I downloaded it and it's, it's an excellent read. Uh, right on. And those are, you know, truth is crazier than fiction. 
Oh, uh, which is one of the reasons why I think you say nonfiction often is more interesting than fiction. So two things I think of when I think of you. The, the first is, is that personal development is professional development. Uh, it, it's one of the core beliefs that you accept as soon as you get into EO. Um, and it proves itself true time and time again. Yeah. Um, and the next would be the, the belief uh, that humans can drink through fire hoses when it comes to an education. <laughs> uh, and, and I bring that up to bring up the scaling up summits mm. because I have yet to attend one where like the moment that you log off, you don't think to yourself, oh my goodness, I'm going to need hours to process everything that I just experienced. What I'd love for you to talk about is not only the idea behind it, yeah. but the structure, because I feel like the structure of these events is, is, is perfection. I, I really do in the way that you. you get just enough information from the right people where you just want a little bit more and you move on to the next one. Uh, and the speakers that you have, or I know it feels like a commercial, but like, you know, I, I drink yeah. the Kool-Aid. I really do. And, uh, and everyone is so well prepared. The, the information is presented in such a clear and succinct way. It, it is a linear story. And, uh, and I want you to talk about it because I think people, especially in the industry, can get so much value from it. Well, thank you. We, um, yeah, we, what we wanted to resist was just taking what we do in person and throwing it online. Mm -hmm. You know, so the normal, you know, scale up some is two days. But, and so a lot of people tried to do their two day online. And I don't know, I, I just, I couldn't suffer through them myself so we said all right let's let's do it different and so and we knew people needed the information quick so we had these top speakers we gave them 10 minutes which is about half a ted talk but we said look let's we're not gonna even waste a sentence saying we hope you're safe and doing okay nobody needed to hear that one more time they just needed you to get into your topic get the to-dos delivered in a few minutes and then they always had some kind of a resource that said, hey, if this was interesting to you, then you can go learn more and we'll be there to support you. So we wanted to really respect the stress that people were under and the time constraints that they were under and get them some very, very quick information. So the crazy part was there in the beginning of that crisis where we would have held one summit, we held four, mm -hmm. where we would have had 10 speakers, we had 40 speakers. And where we would have hosted maybe a thousand people, we hosted eighteen thousand. And so the crazy part was we twenty xed our reach, mm -hmm. which was really a wake up call for us. By the way, we're continuing to evolve that model. We gave folks a little bit more time this last, and now we're looking at um, our next two virtual summits will be just three speakers, but thirty minutes apiece. And Mm -hmm. We tested it when it was uh, Jim Collins, myself, Pat Lanchoni, and Ram Sharon. We each had 30 minutes, and that seemed to be enough time to really go deeper. I think folks now are ready to go deeper, but they still don't want to spend more than about 90 minutes. Uh, <laughs> a kind of a good Netflix, you know, special. So, uh, hey, we're, we're continuing to evolve our model, but, but thank you. I'm glad it's been helpful, Josh. It has incredibly helpful. And, and I would love for you to take an opportunity at the end of every episode. I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. If you were an independent restaurateur, what would you be doing to scale up in this moment? 
Well, you and I talked about it before. First, read, if you haven't, I know you've emphasized it. Read Wolfgang Puck's HBR article that came out at the beginning of this crisis. And on our very first summit, we hosted Margaret Heffernan. And she said, in a word, the most important thing you've got to do is be ambitious. And that's what I love that Wolfgang Puck said is, we're not going to survive this. We're going we're gonna to grow during this crisis. And it starts with the mindset that it's possible. Because I know this, if you, don't, if you don't think it's possible, I know for sure it's not. That's Vern Harnish. We covered a ton of information in today's episode and links to everything are included in the show notes. To keep up with Vern, go to scalingup.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.